Thanks for joining us for this week's message. At First Baptist, we exist to love God, love people, and make disciples. We hope you find yourselves blessed, challenged, and encouraged by this week's message. And for more information, you can follow us on social media or visit us at fbcrockhill.org. Well, I'd just soon hear more of that than listen to me talk. I've heard me before. You know, I have to be where I am every time I speak. That's how God gets even with me for, you know, all the abuse. I'm, a, I'm kind of uh, always amazed that I get to come back anywhere. Uh, you know, after one shot, usually that pretty well does it. And I only have one sermon, so I'm going to go over the same thing I did last time. Teasing. All right, teasing. Not that it was that good. All right, your pastor texted me last night. He told me to persecute you with great enthusiasm. So I'm here to do just that because you don't get enough from him. And uh, I don't want you to feel that you've been neglected in any way. It's always, uh, always good to be in his orbit and be in yours. You know, Steve mentioned that about 40 years ago, Kathy and I had the privilege of being church founder, or not church founder, a founding pastor of a church that celebrated 40th anniversary actually this year. We went back for that. It's a magnificent time in our lives. Those of you who are young, younglings, have no idea what kind of world it was 40 years ago. Of course, you weren't here. But one of the things that came along about the time our church started was cable television. Now, some of you uh, can remember pre-cable, back when there were like three channels, right? I was the remote growing up. My dad said, son, get up, turn, change the channel. But there were only three, so it wasn't that big of a deal. Now with a thousand, I would have been up a lot more. Uh, it would have been um, a little more challenging. But right next to where our church started, we rented some space on the downtown square in Mount Pleasant, Texas, which is about two hours northeast of Dallas, deep east Texas. And uh, right next to where our church was, was this, the, the radio and television studio that had gone whole hog into this new cable industry. They literally ran a cable to our church, set up a remote uh, camera in the back, and we televised. I mean, we, we were on cable. We, I mean, Billy Graham, who's he? We were, uh, we had arrived. So he told me, he said, now look, Reggie, um, by the way, it, was only, it only went to the locals. I mean, no one, no one got this like in the Philippines or anything. Uh, cable was still very, very geographically centered. But he said, now look, you've got from 11 to 12. At 12 o'clock, the feed comes from the USA Network, which was the live cable stuff. And, and there's no bumper, there's no transition at 12 o'clock. That's on. He said, so you got to wrap up by then. Well, I played along with that for a couple of weeks, maybe three, four. And I was, you know, a good boy, finished our church on time. I didn't go on and on like some pastors I know. And um, none, none close to here. I'm just thinking about. Them. Anyway, so about maybe the week four or five, I lost myself. And I went, to, you know, a little longer. And it was about noon when I came, you know, got to the middle of the floor and said, now, if you want to you know, become a Jesus follower today, or you want to join our church, why well, extended an invitation. At that moment, it was 12 o'clock, just as I said that. 
And without any bumper, any transition, this is what came up on the screen at people's homes. This is what came up. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> now, can you imagine you're watching a church service and the pastor's inviting people to come? They, I, we took things pretty serious in our church. I mean, if you come down front, we're going to wrestle you. You know, uh, one of my members called me and says, Reg, I don't think this is a good idea, this cable thing, or else you're going to have to tell time a little better. So I want you to, by the way, your graphics team, uh, if you think that's uh, challenging enough, your graphics team uh, kept you from seeing a live sumo wrestler. But those, those mammoth human beings that go at it in that sport, I want you to name one of those hope. And name the other one fear. It's like those are the sumo wrestlers of our mind, our heart, our psyche, our will. They have played out through all human history and they play out in every one of us. We all struggle in our lives. Sometimes hope has the upper hand. Hope never looks better than when it has fear on the mat. But boy, fear is never more fearsome than when it has hold in a chokehold. And we ebb back and forth between these enormous forces that shape who we are. You think about hope, for instance. There's a reason that hope is the first candle we light during the Advent season. Because you see, without hope, humans can't go on. It is that critical to our existence. In fact, the author of Hebrews even says that hope informs our faith. He says it like this. Now, faith is whatever he says should come up. Yeah, now faith is being sure of what we, what? Hope for. Hope informs our faith. And I'll tell you why that I, I believe that to be true. See, I think hope, <clears throat> hope in humans is the North Star. It's, it's um, a re, uh, an echo of the kingdom of God that he puts in us. I mean, there is a reason that we think that there is more to life than this. I think if we had just crawled out of the primordial ooze as creatures, we wouldn't dream of another world. When I ask people sometimes, and I'm talking with them about faith and all, I say, tell me your hopes. And then they'll, they, almost everyone has hopes and dreams. And then I'll say, well, where do you think those come from? You see, I think they're put in us as a homing device. We want to go there. We want to experience that life that God has for us. It's just in human beings who are made in the image of God to want to grow into our own skin as God thought about us as he dreamt us up and made us, sent us to this planet. Hope is that critical. In fact, we know <clears throat> that without hope, humans cannot, humans lose ground and lose their minds. They lose not just faith, but their very souls. See, because hope has an enemy, doesn't it? It's that other wrestler, fear, that seems to stalk us all of our days. In fact, fear goes back to the very earliest, the dawn of human history. 
Look what the writer of Genesis says. Right happened right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? This is interesting, like God really didn't know where Adam was. I mean, he had a homing device in him. He knew exactly where he was. But Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was what? Afraid. The very first repercussion of sin entering into the world, fear. It is still true that the kingdom of anti-life, whereas the kingdom is all about life that God has, the kingdom of anti-life is always trying to reduce life, always trying to siphon off its energy and zest. And the chief weapon is fear. There's a reason the Bible has as its most frequent command, don't be afraid. That's not accidental because God understands the fear that we all deal with. Just this week, I went ahead and looked at a litany or a catalog of fear that psychologists say that we all confront. And as I go through this catalog, if you, if you realize you don't have that fear, then you know, be sure to pick it up somewhere, Christmas, Amazon, somewhere. You don't wanna not have the full experience. As a baby, we're afraid of falling and loud noises. I read this week that a, a baby, on average, now, and I don't know who's counting, but anyway, on average, falls 1,551 times learning to walk. I, I, like I say, who, who's counting? But anyway, that's what I've read. As an infant, we have that fear. But then we add to that nine months to 18 months, about a year and a half, we begin to have a fear of abandonment. Before we can speak, gang, we have a sense that we might be left alone. This is why <clears throat> the parents' arms are so critical when they come and they hold us and we, we gather our children to ourselves. It's a, an affirmation to that child who cannot articulate that fear. I'm afraid of being left alone. It gets even worse by, you know, by age four or five, we begin to understand that, there, that we can be and live or we may not be. And so the fear of annihilation creeps into our, our psyche and we, we nail that fear. Even if we don't have a reason for it, we, we embody the sense of it so that it gets triggered by various things in our lives. When we are dissociated from people, when expectations don't fall, we think not only are we abandoned, we're not going to make it. By grade school, it's the fear of performance. Am I going to be good enough? And boy, our school system really presses us in with grades and measuring us up in all kinds of ways. And then we, in middle school, it becomes a fear of building a social, or of, of other people. Are they going to steal us away as we build our social network, begin to take responsibility for our friends, not just the friends that our parents hand to us in their relationships, but we go out into the world. It's fearsome out there. And boy, has social media 
See a bunch of you know youngling girls, middle school girls in our audience today. I'm telling you, I'm, what am I telling you? You know how brutal it is out there. People who are totally anonymous can launch grenades into your life and just explode and just take away the joy or say mean things. That's fear, fear. By the time we get to high school, it's, it's the fear of growing up even which, by the way, has been pushed now all the way up to young adulthood, 20, and it's not adulthood now, it's, it's late 20s, where uh, uh, millennials and Gen Zs right on the cusp of those generations struggle with, why do I want to accept all the responsibility of, of adulthood? It's not true in every case, but we're seeing, uh, as, as a generation, we're seeing something new and profound happen, a fear of becoming an adult, releasing childhood and moving into adult responsibilities. And then as adults, we have these fears that stalk us like worry. It starts out as anxiety, manifests in our brain. By the way, do you know that worry is addictive? I don't know that you, anyone's ever told you that, but the more, the, the more you worry, the more you want to worry. Your brain literally tells itself, it shuts down the endorphins, and it literally tells it you need to worry more. It's, it's kind of like you think you're solving something or somehow you're worried if you can just fix it and focus on that. You do know, I, I, you're smart people, of course, so you know that all of this 24-7 this cable stuff, if it's Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whatever, the way you keep coming, you get, keep people coming back is just to make them worry. Because that fear that is whispered in, they're going to take the country away. Uh, our country's, uh, the fear mongering that keeps the crowds coming back, it's, that's addictive. And people who sit in that soup all day long, their anxiety rises. We can trace this. And the, not only does anxiety rise, but so does tribalism, so do all the things that plague, and mental health issues that are plaguing our country. I read just this morning, you know, the single biggest cause of the rise of gun violent deaths in this nation, it's not people shooting each other. It's people killing themselves. Suicide is, put, is the number one increaser. Way over half of all gun deaths are self-inflicted. I didn't know that. That is an amazing statistic of ter that should terrify us and wake us up even more to the mental health issues that stalk the PTSD that our country's in, the post-COVID, whatever it is you want to say is pushing the anxiety and the worry through the roof and people's mental health going through the floor. It's an amazing phenomenon that we're living through in an unusual way. Fear is that strong. That's why I say it's a sumo wrestler. It is enormous and it is incredibly, incredibly frightening and, and strong in order and, and vigorous and never gives up. I'm telling you, the enemy of your soul loves to whisper fear into the corridors of your heart all day long. Just at the point that you think, I have something to hope for. I think things are going great. We're in a great season or whatever. Oh, the devil never misses a chance to whisper, yeah, but just around the corner. 
Don't you feel too, I mean, it, 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 he's, he's very wily about keeping us, keeping us on the ropes. So these wrestlers, these enormous pressures of our life, hope and fear. As I think about them, I come to Bethlehem. <laughs> where I suggest to you, we can see hope and fear going at it for the past 4,000 years. Because for four millennia, in Bethlehem's amphitheater of, set in the hills where it is about 2,500 feet above sea level, it's almost like an, a stage with the surrounding hills. And hope and fear have kept people mesmerized there for four millennia. So 4,000 BC, there's a family headed to Bethlehem. They had just passed the sign, Bethlehem, one exit one mile. But the midwife gives a nod to the husband, whose name is Jacob. One of the great love stories of the Old Testament. Jacob in love with Rachel. He falls in love with her at his uncle's place. He works for 14 years just to be able to, to have her as his, as his wife. I mean, it's, it's, he is so committed to her. And she is in childbirth on the way to Bethlehem. The hope of that child, that new Benjamin coming into the world, which will be the last tribe of, of, of Israel, Benjamin, the tribe that will give Israel its first king and our great apostle Paul. Benjamin's birth means Rachel's death. She dies in childbirth on the road to Bethlehem. Hope gives way to fear. Of fears, and yet Jacob carries Benjamin, this, this hope of his, the, the juxtaposition of these, where we carry these sometimes simultaneously in our lives, leads us to Bethlehem. 700 years later, it's a family coming out of Bethlehem. Not the road to, but the road from. See, famine has taken over the land. And Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons, Killian and Malan. By the way, if you ever get called up for Bible Jeopardy, get those names and you'll probably need them. They understand there's a new Whole Foods opening up over in Moab. And so they set out to feed their family, reestablish themselves. I mean, it's, you think it's difficult to move, you, to move cultures there. I mean, you had to renounce. Uh, anyway, it was, it was a tough decision, but it was the fear of what was going on around them, but the hope of Moab that drove them to such extreme. Now they get there and the hope seems to be well rewarded. They can eat their families. And then the, the unthinkable happens. Elimelech, the leader of the clan, dies. And not too long after, both sons die. So here's Naomi in a world with no social security, no social net, uh, in a foreign uh, culture, in a foreign country, 
with no widow rights. I mean, this is, this is a scary place to be. So fear comes in. She calls her two daughters-in-law in and she says, I release you from any sense of obligation to me so that you can go be with your families here in Moab because both sons had, ma- had married Moabite women. One of the daughters-in-law says, thanks, that's, a, that's all I need to know. And she's out the door. The other son, daughter-in-law, who meant, some of you at your wedding had, had these words repeated that she said to Naomi, Ruth was her name, said to Naomi, are you kidding? Don't even. Where you go, I'm going. Where you set up shop, I'm setting up shop. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so Ruth and Naomi, well, where do you go? Of course, back to Bethlehem, to Naomi's family. Ruth in tow, fear giving way to hope of being able to make it back home with the relatives. Well, the good news is Ruth's not there very long before she meets Boaz. Boaz is kind of well-to-do. Money never hurts in these situations. Boaz falls in love with, Ruth catches his eyes. They become an, an item. One thing leads to another. After they're married, they have a son named Obed. In Obed's life, one thing leads to another. He has a son named Jesse. In Jesse's life, one thing leads to another. And he has a son named David. (laughs) David. We're talking Bethlehem boy wonder here. They even renamed the town after this guy. I mean, he showed such promise early. He won all the slingshot contests. He, 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 he beat everybody at running bears out of the you know, backyard. I mean, this guy was good, and he was the star athlete. But it is interesting. I find it interesting that David's family didn't seem to pick up on this so much. Because when Gandalf shows up at Jesse's house, looking, for, well, that's Samuel, I mean, uh, I think of Samuel when I think of Gandalf and Lord of the Rings. They're kind of alike. You know, where did they go in between their show? I mean, what are they doing? I, you know, where have you been? But anyway, so, so Samuel, <clears throat> the prophet, shows up at Jesse. He says, I've come to anoint the future king of Israel. So I'd like to look over the, the catalog here. The son, how would you like to grow up? David knew that his dad didn't come up with him the first, second, third, fourth, fifth time. Samuel has to keep asking, this all your sons? Are you sure I'm just not getting the email here? And Jesse finally says, well, yeah, we got the kid out back practicing to be a rock star. But, you know, by the way, some of you will get that on the way home. I'm a little tired of (laughs) y'all not getting stuff. I don't know why I'm just pearls before swamp. Anyway, uh, so we'll bring him in, Samuel says. So David gets anointed. His family doesn't keep up with this, apparently. I mean, because later on, I mean, he's, he's I, I, just, it's, I won't get to it. But you know what? David, with all of the expectations that the town folks had in him, that Samuel had in him, 
His own family never got him. And I'm just bringing this up because for some of you, I'm telling you, your own, your, your family of origin never will get you. And that's fearful for us. But I'm telling you, it's hopeful that your family of origin is not the book on you. Because David rose above those low expectations by his own family to become the greatest leader to this day that Israel has ever had. He inaugurated 1000 BC. It was the golden age of Israel. David united the king, the, all the tribes, established central worship, uh, became a, 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 hegemon, a, a leader in the region, unlike anything that Israel has seen since. So David modeled, David instilled hope. And by the way, the Philistines, who were the tribe of the Hamas of that day, were always at David, always picking at the kingdom. But David consistently, consistently beat them. And so that he established the nation of hope. But hope doesn't last forever, does it? At least circumstantially, because David dies. And his son Solomon keeps things together. But after he dies, the kingdom splits into two, two parts. Bethlehem stays, is in the southern kingdom. The 10 tribes that are north of there are taken into captivity way early. About six centuries before Jesus came, the southern kingdom falls to Nebuchadnezzar from Baghdad. The Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem and all the citizens of Bethlehem run into Jerusalem to try to hold out through the siege. Eventually it breaks down and Nebuchadnezzar force marches the citizens of Bethlehem and Jerusalem and all the surrounding area to Baghdad. And there they languished in exile for 70 years. Now, some of you may feel like you've been in exile. It may not have been 70 years, but you know some of the fear that I'm talking about. Will life ever get normal again? Will I ever be able to get back to the place where I feel at home? Will my kids ever know me fully by knowing what, where I grew up and what is part of our, will they adopt my faith? Will they embrace our culture? Will, will they be who we are? The fear of losing yourself in that exile. I think there are many of us all too familiar with how that feels. But 70 years later, the Persians overthrow the Babylonians and Cyrus, who's king of the Persians, has a total different outlook on how you manage an empire as opposed to pulling people out of their home. He's big on sending people back to their home. He thinks they'll be better citizens and they'll pay their taxes quicker and he wants peace. So he releases Israel back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah records the names of 188 men out of Bethlehem who come back from exile, reestablish the town. Hope springs up again. It's going to be 500 years before another word comes from God. 
if you read the intertestamental uh, materials and the, uh, the Jewish writers of that time, and all, it, was a, it was a dark time of wonder, of fear. Have we lost it? What did we lose in the exile? Coming back, it's not, even though we rededicated the temple and all that stuff, where is God and why is he silent? In fact, if for some of us, if God is silent for five minutes or five days or five years, we think, imagine centuries of not knowing. But the word of hope does come to a young teenage girl, right? Nazareth. Gabriel says to her, have I got some news for you? Better sit down. You're going to have a child. It's going to be a boy. You're going to call him Jesus. And by the way, he's the son of the Most High God. Now, it's kind of good that an angel paid Joseph a visit too to clue him in on what's going on here. So the couple begins to make plans to receive this new child and there were a lot of plans around work in the nursery, you know, getting everything set up. And wouldn't you know it, wouldn't you know it, tax audit, right at the time that expecting the child, Caesar Augustus decides he wants to update the tax rolls, make sure everybody's paying. They hired 80 million new IRS agents or something like that. Send everybody back to their hometown. Joseph's hometown is where? Bethlehem. That's the city of his family. Here we are, back to Bethlehem. Donkey rides and childbirth. It's, anyway, it, it's not a great mix. As they get closer, Mary gets goes into labor. We know the rest of this story. Out back in a barn, whatever, however the manger is set up in your mind. Not in the guest house. A boulder of hope is dropped into the pool of fear that has gripped humanity since the garden. And the very first words announcing the birth of the Son of God is made to who? Shepherds. And what's the very first thing the angel says? Fear not. For hope is born. And it's going to be a hope that's going to wipe out fear. It'll never be the same. Go into Bethlehem. See what I'm talking about. They did. And so did a young American pastor named Philip Brooks in 1865 take a horseback trip from Jerusalem on Christmas Eve to Bethlehem, paused in the hills, looking down on the town, went on in and worshiped at the Church of the Nativity, wrote in his journal, I think I heard voices that I knew telling each other of that wonderful night. Three years later, 
getting ready to preach the Christmas message to his congregation, he reflected on that experience. And he wrote a poem. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by, yet in the darkness, thy darkness, the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Brothers and sisters, the hopes and fears of all your years are met in him that night. And I've got even better news. Hope wins. Thank you.